one of the ways the Lord mediates his love and power and grace is through his precious word. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to John. And we're going to read verses 1 to 8 of John 15. And pray as I read that the Lord would already, even before I do any opening of this word, make it real in our lives. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes or he cleanses, same word, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean or pruned because the word which I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, Now get verse 7, because this is the one we're going to focus on. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Father in heaven, there's a mystery here. There's a reality, there's an experience to be learned that I feel like a kindergartner in. What is this verse 7? What is the abiding of the word within such that when we ask, we receive What is that, Father? I pray that you would show us and that you would perform it among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is prayer week, and so today I want to talk about prayer and the word, and next Sunday, prayer and the word. Now... The reason prayer has such potential is God. And the reason prayer is surrounded by so many problems is God. If it weren't for God, prayer would have no potential and have no problems either. It's God who creates the potential. God's rule over nature and his rule over human willing enables us to pray that things change. If God couldn't do it, we wouldn't ask it. It's God who creates the potential for asking for somebody to get saved. Evidently, he can save them. We ask for people to get changed. Evidently, he can change them. We ask for people to get healed. Evidently, he can heal them. So God is the potential of prayer. And... 
He is the problem of prayer. Where is he after the thousandth prayer that didn't get answered, we ask? The healing that never came, the person who never seemed to be converted, where? All those years. And and besides that, why pray anyway? Because he's sovereign and rules and predestines and it all's going to come to pass according to what he plans. And so why ask him to do anything? Those are two big problems that people have when they struggle with God in prayer. Let me say a word about those two problems and then let them guide us into this text. Take the second problem first. Namely, if God is sovereign, if he controls all things, plans all things, predestines and ordains all that comes to pass because he is the ruler of the universe, why pray? I was down in Atlanta a couple of three months ago at a conference talking about the providence of God, arguing that the providence of God rules all things from the fall of a dead bird from a limb in Africa to the movement of the planets. And uh, at the end, I'm sitting on the platform there before 2,000 people, and the first question that comes, question-answer time, is why pray if God is that much in control? And I gave my answer, and subsequently I have read my answer in Charles Spurgeon much better than I said it. So I'm going to read Spurgeon to give you what I believe is the true answer to this question. This is a sermon that he preached 100 years ago in London to about 5,000 people. It is our full belief that God has foreknown and predestined everything that happens in heaven above and on earth beneath, and that the foreknown station of a reed by the river is as fixed as the station of a king. And the chaff from the hand of the winnower is as steered as the stars in their courses. Predestination embraces the great and the little and reaches unto all things. The question is, wherefore pray? Might it not as logically be asked, wherefore breathe, eat, move, or do anything? We have an answer which satisfies us, namely, that our prayers are in the predestination. And that God has as much ordained his people's prayers as anything else. And when we pray, we are producing links in the chain of ordained facts. Destiny decrees that I should pray, I pray. Destiny decrees that I shall be answered, and the answer comes. Close quote. That's my faith. That's what I preach, and that's what I want you to believe for one simple reason. It's biblical. God's sovereignty rules the roll of the dice and the reign of kings. Let me just give you two verses for you to think about. Proverbs 16.33. 
The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Modern paraphrase. The dice are rolled in Las Vegas, and the numbers that end up on top are decreed by God every time. Or Daniel 2.21. He removes kings and establishes kings. And that includes Saudi Arabia or any other Muslim or Hindu or tribal people group. So from the roll of the dice in Las Vegas to the establishing of kings in Saudi Arabia, God reigns. And if you pray, it's because God has brought you to pray. We saw the last two weeks. He writes his law upon our hearts. And what's his law? Pray this way. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And chapter 13, verse 21 of Hebrews, he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So my praying is as much wrought in God's providence as is the roll of the dice in Las Vegas, the establishment of kings in Saudi Arabia, or the establishment of a reed by the river or the movement of the stars. And we can fight against this like an ant against the Sherman tank, all we want, and it would be far better if we would simply join God in the dignity of causality and forge links in preordained facts. That's what would be worthy of little, teeny, weeny, utterly helpless, fallen creatures like us, rather than kicking against the pricks of God's almighty sovereignty. But what about that other problem? You pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. And the years go by, and you keep on praying that he would change. That it would be different. Here are six possible biblical answers. One, it may be that we're not praying according to God's will. First John 5.14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Secondly, it may be that we cherish sin in our lives in some way and hold on to it and cleave to it. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Third, it may be that we have man-centered motives instead of God-centered motives. James 4, 3, if you ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your passions. Fourth, it may be that we just don't believe God will do it. We don't believe him. Mark eleven twenty four. all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Or fifth, it may be that God is testing your faith and your belief in his command from Luke 18, 1. At all times, you ought to pray and not lose heart. God wills that you keep on praying and praying and praying and not lose heart. I've mentioned George Mueller. George Mueller prayed 52 years for some people and got the answer. And there were two people in particular he was praying for as he died. And they got saved at his funeral. After decades and decades of praying. And some of you have only prayed 20 or 30 years for a thing. Don't give up praying. God is testing our perseverance and holding on. And the sixth possible answer is that God may be and probably is 
doing something every time you pray, putting in place a little piece of the mosaic, which when it is time, the whole thing will be done and he will present it to you as a finished work. And he will, he will show you that every one of the prayers worked. We used to say around here years ago, we haven't said it so much in recent years, that in order to avoid vain repetitions, you know, Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles pray with vain janglings and repetitions. He says, how can I avoid that if I pray for the same thing for 20 years? I mean, it sounds the same to me every morning. One way is to put in your mind this thought as you pray it. Lord, suppose you've been praying for somebody's conversion for five years, 10 years, 20 years. You say, Lord, do December 29th's appointed work in answering this prayer today. I pray for healing that way a lot and for other things. Do Sunday's work today in bringing the answer to pass. That's a different prayer than Saturday's work. It's not vain janglings. It's not vain repetitions. It's the belief that today God Almighty hears and he does a new thing today in response to this particular prayer. This cell is moving here and this piece of the body is being affected today. Or, those are six possible answers. Or, maybe, there is a dynamic in prayer that we've not yet discovered. That there's a mystery here. There's something to be learned and experienced. There's some reality that we haven't yet gotten a hold of. It's, it's as though our Father tells us how so to live and pray as to move Him, and we don't get it. We didn't get it. We're children, we heard Him say it, and we didn't get it. And so we haven't been doing it. Is that a possibility, do you think? That God has said something about prayer in his word to you, me. And we heard it and we didn't get it. And so we're not doing it. And so it's not happening. Is that a possibility? I have this gut feeling that's a possibility. And I think verse 7 here is something we haven't gotten entirely. And my goal for 1997 at Bethlehem, one of them, is that God would do it and we'd get it. That we'd get verse 7. That verse 7, whether you can articulate it in your brain and with your mouth or not, it would just come. That verse 7 would come and happen here in this church. If you're newer around Bethlehem, you may not have seen this little book little pamphlet. See that? Mustard-colored book. It's our vision statement. If you don't have one, I really recommend you go to the information table and ask whoever's there, can I have one of those mission booklets? And we'll give you one. we got a bunch of these left over. But our master planning team, the elders and the staff put this together a year and a half or so ago. And on page five, under the values relating to spiritual atmosphere at this church, we tried to list our values. The first two go like this. One, Growing frequency, freedom, depth, and power in corporate, family, and private prayer. That's number one. Number two, making prayer the visible engine 
of all our efforts in ministry and worship. That's why we take a little three or four minute slot and make some of you uncomfortable by praying out loud together. It's got to be a visible engine. You don't hide prayer away and say, oh, you just kind of do that in, in secret. I'll do it down here. We're going to do it in public. It's going to be a visible engine in this church. You're going to hear the... That's, that's prayer. Oh, listen. That's the engine of Bethlehem. That little murmur across the, the congregations. Let's just get used to that. It's okay. You don't have to do it if God's not on you and you're broken hearted. That's okay. But feel okay about doing this. So those two values. And then on page two here, it says... We, this is our spiritual dynamic, we join God the Father in magnifying His glory through our Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit by treasuring all that God is and by loving all whom He loves and by praying all his purposes and by meditating on all his promises and sustained by all his grace. That's what page two says. Now take those two lines, praying for all his purposes and meditating on all his promises or his word. Here's the mystery of John fifteen seven. What's the relationship between those two? Praying his purposes and meditating on his word. I don't think we got it. I really don't. I don't think I've got it. And the reason I'm not preaching a sermon this morning that says, here's, here's what it is, now do it, is because I don't think I've got it. I think we need to learn it. I need to learn it. I feel like a kindergartner in this verse. Let's read it together. Make sure you see what I'm talking about here. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, Jesus is speaking now to us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Wow. Wow, you got that? Is that a done deal in your life? You got that figured out? You experienced that? That's happening in my life, you say? Talk to me after the service and tell me about it. Because I don't think I've got it. So my question is, is what is that? What is the abiding of the words of Jesus in me such that when I pray, it happens? I'm not sure what it is, but I really want us to learn together. There's a tremendous potential here about God's work. Now, in 1987... How many were here in 1987? Raise your hand. Not many, but a few. Well, those of you who, who weren't, after I tell you what I'm going to tell you, you're going to say, I'm glad I wasn't there because 
This is going to sound critical of all of us who were here. Here's a survey we did in 1987. These are the results. Tabulation. 255 people took this survey. Prayer week of 87. So that's 10 years exactly ago. We asked eight questions. Number three was, how frequently do you read the Bible? Four, how much time per week do you spend reading the Bible? And uh, six, how much time per week do you spend in focused prayer? Now, here are some of the results. Just so you know, here's Bethlehem. Frankly, I doubt that it's any different today than these statistics. 21% of those 255 people who responded to the survey said... Uh, 15 minutes a week or less do we read the Bible. And another 25% said 30 minutes or less. So 46% of our people read the Bible on average less than five minutes a day. So get up when the Bible, read for five minutes or read at night for five minutes. 46%. On the question of prayer... 62% said they spend less than 30 minutes a week in prayer. That's less than five minutes a day. Now, here's my question. Is that John 15, 7? It's just a question. But I'm telling you, I'm not sure what this verse means. I'm asking you, do you think that's what it means? If you abide in me and my words... Abide in you. Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. Now, here's the, here's the remarkable thing about this. Among those 46% who give the Lord's word on average five minutes a day, there are many who are very resentful at God. For not answering their prayers. A lot of anger at God. Among those people who give him four, three, five minutes a day. Skip two days, come back, give him a few. Skip three days, come back, give him another one. Skip two days. And yet get very angry when they cry out for something to change and it doesn't change. A lot of resentment against God. It seems strange to me strange that that would that those two things would go together in view of this verse that people would actually feel the right to get upset with God when they treat their marriage like hi see you when I come home hi see you on the way to TV hi see you on the way to the garage or hi see you on the way to the whatever hi that's a marriage now I I know one of the things that's happening in this room right now. Incredible defenses are going up. You're going to tell us how many minutes we're supposed to spend now? In order to earn prayer answers? You're going to lay a legalistic thing on us, aren't you? We're going to get a good performance mentality at Bethlehem. That's a new, new key phrase. We're going to get a performance mentality here, Right? And legalism is on the way. Who can smell it? These kinds of sermons stink of legalism. Right? God, 
Got all the defenses ready now to protect your freedom. Look, let's just lay them down, would you? And join me trying to figure out what this verse means. I just want to know what this means. I want to know what he means when he says, if you will abide in me and my words will abide in you, ask whatever you will and I'll do it. I just want to know what that means. And I want to live it. I want to live it more than anything. We're not talking here about earning anything from God by X minutes for X number of answered prayers. It's not that. It's values. It's what do you value? How do you live out what you value? Here's the example I thought of that might help rescue me from legalism here. Suppose you're a coach and you got a football team, and it's a good football team, and you might win the championship. And so somebody comes to this coach, gives him tens of thousands of dollars, and says, what I want you to do is spread a steak dinner every night after practice for, for your whole team. Steak dinner, baked potatoes, all kinds of good vegetables, good fruit, and tell them it's free. Parenthesis, not legalistic, close parenthesis. It's free. You can have this meal, and every day after practice, eat it, enjoy it, and if you do that, grow strong, you'll grow strong, and we'll win the championship. About halfway into the season, they lost four games already. And the coach finds out half of them are skipping the meal and going down to the pie shop and the candy store and they're just porking out on pastries and candy. And he gets mad. He gets upset. He says, what are you doing? I spread this totally free, absolutely free meal of steak and potatoes and vegetables and fruit before you. And I just tell you, eat it freely and we'll win. And you skip it and go get pie and candy. Princess, television, you name it, whatever. You, you get that stuff. And they say, in anger, we don't want a legalistic relationship with you. We want to be free. We want to relate to you, coach, according to what our desires are. And right now, I desire pie. And so I'm going to get pie because I want to be free with you. Don't use that defense, folks. Don't use that. That's a trick of the devil to make you weak. They were losing their games because of so-called freedom. God has given you also some discipline and some willpower under grace to feed on the words of Jesus. This is not legalism here. This is simply a desperate cry. God, in 1997, would you teach us the meaning of John 15, 7? That's all it is. Because I don't know. I don't know. I can't lift myself up here and say, I got this verse in my pocket. The words are abiding in John Piper to the degree that when he opens his mouth in prayer, it all happens. What does this verse mean?
Let me give you three possibilities and then tell you when I'm done. I don't think that's it or all of it. Here's the first possibility. Just three short possibilities. Maybe when it says that if the word of God abides in us, our prayers will be answered. It means that the word of God, when it comes into your mind and heart, will teach you what you ought to pray for so that you pray according to God's will. First John five fourteen. if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So maybe the word of God shapes our minds to only ask for things that are his will, and then we only get answers. That's the first possibility. Here's the second one. Maybe when the word of God abides in us, it sustains and quickens and strengthens faith. And faith is what lays hold on God for answers to prayer. Now, we know, according to Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we know that, according to Mark eleven twenty four, whatever you ask, believe that you have it and it will be done for you. So if the word produces the faith and the faith gets the answer, maybe that's the way the word gets the answer. Maybe that's what John 15, 7 means. Or third possibility. Maybe it means that when the word comes and abides within us, it sanctifies us and frees us from sins because we know that cherished sins keep prayers from being answered. Psalm 66, 18, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so we know also from John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. So we become holy or sanctified by the truth. So maybe it is that when the word is abiding in us, it doesn't just tell us what to pray for. It makes us the the new kind of creatures that we ought to be so that we're walking in the pathway of love and ministry. And there's where God answers prayer because he loves to give boosters behind righteousness. Maybe that's the meaning of John 15. Seven. One of the things we know for sure is that verses 1 to 8, the context here, really focuses on fruit bearing. You see that? Verse 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So the dynamic of this text seems to be, or the main goal of this text seems to be, God wants fruit to the glory of God. He wants us to bear fruit. I think the fruit bearing is both the the fruit of joy and love, because those two things are mentioned in the context later. And I think it's also transformed people in our lives. People changed, people converted. So fruit in here and fruit out there. And evidently, when Christ, by his word, abides in us and his words abide in us and we abide in him, we bear fruit. But it says, if that happens, we get our prayers answered. So it seems to have three parts. Here comes the word. It abides within. Prayers are given. And surely then these prayers have something to do with fruit bearing. And we pray. And then comes all this Fruit and changed us and changed them and people moved and missionaries sent and 
Change. Prayer is all about change happening in the world. People being different than they are. Societies being different than they are. Cultures being different than they are. Minds and hearts getting changed. That's what prayer is all about. The fruit of change. I suppose at this level of my kindergarten understanding of this verse, I would put it in this sentence. Here's what I think the verse means. Effective prayer is the overflow of the fullness of the word abiding within. Effective prayer is the overflow of the fullness of the words of Christ abiding within, which leaves totally unanswered what that fullness is supposed to look like and what that abiding is. Next Sunday, I'm finished now, and this is transition now. Next Sunday, the text is going to be that familiar text from Psalm 119 about hiding or treasuring the word in our hearts. And I'm going to go home this week and I'm going to try my best by prayer and study to get closer to what is this. You see, we are so culturally bound at this point, it's pathetic. If you lived, it's just a little t- taste. If you lived in a pre-printing press culture of the first century and you were Jewish you would not have any books at home there might be a scroll in the synagogue and a rich scholar might have some parchments an average family zero books so how do you know anything answer you learn it all by heart And they learn the whole Torah by heart. The five books of Moses by heart, without a book. Could it be, just possibility, that we don't have a clue what Jesus meant? That meditating on the law of the Lord day and night might mean something so far outside our culture that if Jesus were to explain it to us, we would say... You gotta be kidding. In 20th century America, I work. I watch television. I read the newspaper. I can't memorize Genesis. I mean, it just might be possible. I'm not telling you it is. It just might be possible that in that culture, my words abiding in you In the context of Psalm 1, meditating on the Lord day and night and treasuring up the word in your heart that you might not sin against me, that might have had a ring utterly, radically different than anything you can imagine right now. That's why I say, let's make it our goal in 1997 to discover together what it might mean to live this verse. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our heart's desire is very simply that we might abide in you and that your words might abide in us so that we might in all humility 
open our hungry mouths and ask for what you will and that fruit might be born in our lives and in this church and in this city and among the nations for your glory. And all the people said, Amen.